James. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, A.V., and thank you for joining us this morning. We're glad to have you with us here this morning at Heartland Baptist Fellowship. I pray that God is blessing you as you're joining us this morning. If you're just tuning in, you are at HBF, Heartland Baptist Fellowship in Cass County. We are glad to have you with us, as as Jason said a little bit earlier. And uh, what a great song and introduction to what we're going to be talking about this morning in, in regard to our sermon series. We've been in the book of Acts, and we've been talking about discovering our DNA. We started off in the first 12 chapters talking about a few faithful men. What God did with a few faithful men was just outstanding. But really, when you look at what the Apostle Paul did, he was one of the few faithful men that was called in Acts chapter 9. Once an enemy of the gospel, now he is an advocate for the gospel. We see him fulfilling his ministry call. And when we think about what it is to, be, uh, to be, have a DNA, right? That is something that's passed along genetically from generation to generation. We know that we get Adam's DNA. That's a bad deal. Uh, but because of Christ, through faith, we get Christ's DNA. We're literally going to be changed physically. Uh, but we're already, if you're born again this morning, changed spiritually And so when you're looking for your history, your family tree, you just go back to the book of Acts and you see that in the book of Acts, it really contains really who you are in Christ. And you can see living illustrations and living epistles, and it's quite exciting to read about. And so we're coming to the end of the Apostle Paul's life, and we've been looking at the, the blessings of blamelessness. Paul has, uh, is really on the tail end of his ministry, and I pray by God's grace I never fumble the ball, and uh, I can end the ministry uh, when the rapture comes or whatever, uh, whatever comes before the rapture, if I die before that. I, I want to be faithful like Paul. Paul is running his race to the end. He is not going to drop the ball, so to speak. He's not going to let go of, the, of, uh, of that... Uh, of that gospel commission that was given him early on. And I pray by God's grace, if you're following me this morning, there's kind of some that'll be going, yeah, man, that's me. I want to be faithful to the end. There's some of you that are like, man, I've already dropped the ball. And others of you are like, what are you talking about? This, I thought I was watching a sermon. You're talking about football analogies. Well, all of those things I hope will be addressed today. But one of the things that we got to do is seize opportunities. And so the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at really what that looks like in the context of Paul's life. And I just want to thank you for joining us this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, be turning to or dialing up in your tablet or whatever, the book of Acts chapter 9. You're like, well, wait a minute, I thought we were in Acts chapter 25. We will be in Acts 25, so if you want to go ahead and get a finger in Acts chapter 25, we will spend the bulk of our time this morning in Acts chapter 25, looking at verses 13 through 27. But this morning, I want to just start off uh, in Acts chapter 9. Now, before I get there, I want to remind you where we've been in Acts 25, because we've been talking about the blessings of blamelessness. Uh, and we know that the blessings of blamelessness makes bondage bearable. The Apostle Paul was in Acts chapter 24 and verse 24 under, under incarceration, house arrest, so to speak, in the palace of Felix uh, in Caesarea for two years, waiting and waiting and waiting. And, of course, nothing was coming until Festus replaced Felix and then Fe- uh, Felix uh, was willing to do the Jews a pleasure, and he just, the longer he left Paul incarcerated, the happier they were, because that would give them still hope that they could kill him. Well, Festus comes in, and we saw that uh, Paul uh, was able to bear that bondage, and he, every day he just witnessed. He witnessed to Drusilla and Felix, and he just enjoyed, uh, I say he enjoyed, I'm sure it wasn't a, a joy every day. It's like being at home when you could be doing other things during COVID-19, but the reality is he, he was willing to bear it. For the, for the glory of God. And in the meantime, God gave him opportunity uh, as he bore that burden and he was able to minister. But then Festus replaced Felix. It didn't go well, by the way, with Felix. He wasn't very good to the Jews. Eventually, they got rid of him and uh, they caused enough of a, of a turmoil. But Festus comes in and we saw Festus then and also wanting to please the Jews. And, and we saw that um, 
uh, really, no matter what, Paul was tried a second time. Uh, there was no you know, law against double jeopardy or whatever. And so Paul is tried again, and of course he's innocent again. Uh, and so we saw that, that he won the battle spiritually. Uh, he won the battle legally. Paul was a winner uh, because in Christ, that's, that's who he was pursuing. He wanted to win Christ. But it didn't always, it wasn't just, uh, this wasn't always Paul's life. And we're getting ready, and we're not going to get to it this week. Next week we're going to see Paul, again, lay out his testimony uh, to a king named Agrippa. And this is the third, third person that's entering the story uh, in regard to a, a principality and a power, a person that, that God is providing an open opportunity to witness to. And uh, it's, quite a, it's quite impressive. And it's also, we're going to see next week, the lengthiest explanation of the Apostle Paul's testimony that's found in the book of Acts. So uh, I'm going to hold off to, to that. But I want you to start at the beginning. The beginning, the first day of the Apostle Paul's new life in Christ. And, and uh, when he first got saved, the first days, I should say, to be more uh, precise. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 9. This is still the first uh, 12 chapters, right? So this is when we were looking at the, the few faithful men. This is before we transitioned to discovering our DNA and the transition from Peter to the Apostle Paul. If you haven't been with us that long, we, we've noted that the, the Bible breaks up Acts into two halves. The first half, or the first section, I should say, it's not equal in number, but the first section of chapters, 1 through 12, deal primarily with how God is dealing with the nation of Israel in regard to the gospel and their, both, uh, their acceptance and then ultimately their rejection. And then Paul is transitioning, and the book of Acts is a transitional book. So this is a record of Paul's ministry when he first gets saved, his road to Damascus experience that he will be sharing with King Agrippa. But let's go back and look at the beginning. In, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 10, the Bible says, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street that's called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. Okay. And he seeth in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. At this point, Paul is blind from his introduction to the Lord Jesus. And then verse 13 says, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I heard many, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he had done to the saints at Jerusalem. I mean, Paul was notorious for persecuting the church. Verse 14, And, and here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Like Ananias is like, Lord, are you sure you want me to go talk to Saul of Tarsus? I mean, this dude is a bad boy, and he has authority to put me away. And this is what the Lord says. He says in, in, in verse 15, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you so much for this Beautiful passage of scripture, a man's life changed through the gospel, through a meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may today as we look at the word of God, may someone hear the good news that Jesus Christ 
is not a fable. He is not a story. He is truly alive today. May they hear the gospel and receive it with joy. May they receive it uh, in fear. I don't care, Lord, whatever it takes, Lord. But, but Lord, I, I just pray, God, that they would receive the good news of Jesus Christ and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save their soul. And understand, like Paul, they can go from being an enemy of God to an advocate for Christ. Oh, Heavenly Father, that is a great work that you can do. And for you, it's a light thing. You can, you can do anything. And so, Father, I pray today that, that men would be full of faith, that women would be full of faith, and that we would trust you at your word. We thank you now. We ask a quickening to this teaching, that we wouldn't just be watching television, watching our computer, goofing around, doing other stuff. Lord, help us to focus this morning on the word of God. Help us to be attentive to who you are. We thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I mentioned a moment ago, that song we just sang, the Revelation song, is a great song really to just jump into this passage because the Apostle Paul, man, this guy is tuned in. He is, he's from the first day till now been focused on one thing, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll get into that a little bit more here in just a moment. But the Apostle Paul, in all of his journeys, is now winding down his ministry. And, and uh, he's gone through a lot of things, but he is still this faithful man. And the thing I want to point out from our text before we flip back to chapter 25 is that, that the, the Lord said, look, this man Paul is a vessel. He's, he's got a unique calling on his life. And he's going to preach to the Gentiles. He's going to bear, actually, specifically, he's going to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now, what we've seen in Acts as he's traveled back to Jerusalem is all of those things. And he is fixing to, uh, to get ready to have another audience now before Gentiles, the powers that be in Caesarea, in that region of Rome. He's going to be able to preach to them. But before we look at that, I want to just speak to you a little bit about what makes opportunities available. If you're following along and you've got an outline, this will be your first point. We're going to talk this morning about what makes opportunities available. What it is is blamelessness. The blessings of blamelessness make uh, these opportunities available for the Apostle Paul. But not just the Apostle Paul. Because Paul's on mission, God is using him to bring other people opportunities. So this morning we're going to see three men and the opportunities that are provided. But if you have your Bible, turn back to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25, and we're going to see um, what's going on in the text here. So we've already seen verses 1 through 12. Uh, Festus goes through the second trial, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago, the week before Easter. And, uh, and then we had a great opportunity during Easter to preach the gospel. But, uh, but we are now back in our study, Acts chapter 25. And uh, in verse, uh, in verse uh, 11, um, you know, Paul uh, comes to the place that he appeals to Caesar. So verse 12 picks up, says, Then Festus... When he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. So Paul's fate is fixed. He is going to Caesar. And we saw in Acts chapter 23 and verse 11, he already knew that because God had already told him. Jesus had already uh, appeared to him and, and said, Hey, don't sweat it. You're going to Rome. So just keep doing what you're doing, Paul. You're doing good. And so, uh, so Paul's like, Sir, yes, sir. Praise the Lord. I'm going forward. And so he's been preaching the word of God and he's, and he's going forward. But now we see... Uh, kind of a, a kind of a, an insight to the story. If this was a movie, it'd be kind of like a side plot going on between uh, this man Festus and this King Agrippa. And so, if you look at verse thirteen, the text says, "And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came into Caesarea to salute Festus. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came into Caesarea to salute Festus. Now, just the, kind of the way that the that it is written." by Dr. Luke, right, as he's writing this, you know that almost everybody reading this epistle already knows who Agrippa is and who Bernice is. Now, for us, you know, 
you know, almost a couple thousand years later, we're sitting around going, who's this? Who's Agrippa and who's Bernice? But even for us, right, we're like, I've heard that name Agrippa before. Where's that come from? Well, we see what's going on here is we see that the political expedience meets God's providence here in Acts 25 and verse 13. Because neither Festus nor Agrippa have any idea how important this certain prisoner actually is. In this, in this text that we're going to read this morning, everybody is important, but Paul is the most important. And, and it, you wouldn't even know it by all the things that go on in the text. And so um, now we see that this prisoner, Paul, is a, is a problem. And the problem started in Jerusalem as he was heading, uh, and now he's going to be heading to Rome. And he becomes the concern uh, in the places of power and influence in the Roman Empire. This what they would think is nobody just seems to keep popping up. He's, he's just, his, his case won't go away. His situation, for some reason, he, get, he has the nation of Israel, the leadership in particular, very adamant that he must die. And we just, as he's a Roman, we just can't kill him. You know, if he was a Jew and he wasn't a Roman, well, we could just let him have him. But well, he's a Roman and he knows his rights. And so now the political people are like, man, we got a problem. We got a problem with this guy, Paul, and what are we going to do with him? And so it's God's providence, right, that this happens, that, that Agrippa comes down. But Agrippa's reasons for traveling to Caesarea to visit with Festus are clearly political. I mean, Agrippa has a reason to be there. Uh, he is the last of the Herodian dynasty, uh, which, what's that mean? Well, just before the turn of the, the, the uh, previous century, his great-grandfather, um, Herod the Great, you've probably heard of Herod, He's, he, he really set the monarchy so to speak, or the, 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 uh, he set the, the tone for the, the, uh, the dynasty of the Herodians. It's called the Herodian dynasty. And, uh, and he, uh, in league with uh, Julius Caesar, actually, and, and got in, was, the, was the curator, the power man for that region of the nation of Israel, for Israel, over Israel with Romans, which didn't necessarily set well with the Jews. But nonetheless, they made it work. And so his great-grandfather, uh, Herod uh, the Great, built the temple, that was present during the ministry of Jesus Christ and will soon be destroyed just a decade after the events that we're talking about will be leveled by the Romans, by General Titus. His great-grandfather slaughtered the children under two years of age. You'll remember that in Matthew 2.16. That's his great-granddaddy. Uh, that may be one of the reasons you might remember this, this uh, Herod name, Herod Agrippa. Uh, well, Herod the Great was the one who was fearful, right, of the of the of the Persians or those that came from the east to uh, share that hey the Messiah is born he's like oh he is we're at in Bethlehem great uh, and so uh, he made sure to kill all the children two and under in that region and of course Jesus escaped that uh, that uh, purging uh, but uh, not a very uh, kind man not a man who was obviously secure and a man who also took the scripture serious enough to execute people over it and so Agrippa's father was Herod Agrippa the first. Uh, of Acts chapter 12. We've already covered him. Uh, and he was the grandson of Herod the Great and shared power with the brothers, his brothers for a season over the region of modern-day Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. And in the book of Acts, we, we see the, the phrase Herod the Tetrarch. Well, that would be uh, King Agrippa's father. And so uh, we learn in Acts 12 that Herod Agrippa stretched forth his hand against the church. And in so doing, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, the Bible tells us, in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. And he went after Peter as well. As a matter of fact, he had Peter incarcerated. Peter, you know, miraculously gets taken. The Lord just literally busts him out of jail. It's a great story back there, and we won't get into all that this morning. Next thing you know, 
uh, the, the, the book of Acts chapter 12 tells how uh, his father, Herod Agrippa, um, was uh, in 48 AD, was in Caesarea and put on a great display and an oration and covered himself. And we talked about all that. And then, of course, uh, he exalted himself above measure and the Lord uh, struck him down and he was eaten with worms. And that is not just the record of the word of God, but that is even the record of Josephus, the historian. That did happen. And so uh, after that enters this uh, King Agrippa, the son of the Agrippa that we see in, uh, in the book of Acts chapter 12. And so Herod Agrippa II, he is about 17 years old in Acts chapter 12. So now he's been in the, in the kingdom now for a few decades. And he is, uh, uh, his, some of his power is being stripped away. He's going he's gonna to have more transitions just shortly in, the, in history future just after this meeting with Paul. But at, at, uh, at this time in history, he is, still, uh, he is still over the treasury in the temple. And so uh, he, has, he has influence with the leadership of the nation of Israel. The very men that want to kill the Apostle Paul are men that he is controlling the money, the purse strings. He has power over the purse at the temple in Jerusalem, though he is not actually ruling over Jerusalem at that time. And so uh, he appoints the high priest as well, as well as controlling the treasury. So you can imagine all the Jews that were anybody knew who Herod Agrippa was. They understood who he was and what kind of power he had. And he had a working relationship, of course, with the Sanhedrin, uh, though neither the Sadducees nor the Pharisees particularly were fond of the Herodians uh, because of their sympathies to Rome. They worked with them anyway. So that brings us to where we are in chapter, uh, chapter 25 and verse 13. So it wasn't just that Agrippa happened through with Bernice. We'll talk about her in just a minute. But he was happening through because everything that was going on in Caesarea uh, and the people that were stirred up about it had everything to do with what Herod was doing. And uh, there was tension in the region anyway. That's why Felix, his brother-in-law, yeah, that's his brother-in-law, was removed. Because uh, he caused so much problem among the Jews that uh, the Jews had a, were about to uprise. And, uh, and so they were like, wait, let's get this guy out and let's put this guy Festus in. And so Felix, the governor, uh, <coughs> the governor that Governor Festus replaced was Herod Agrippa II's brother-in-law as Drusilla, who's mentioned in Acts 24-24, was his sister. So the wife of Felix, who we learned, this is like a soap opera. Uh, this is just like real life. The wife of Felix, who had also been the wife of an Assyrian king prior, and she was still a young woman, a teenager in her early 20s, was the wife of Felix. This was the, the sister of Herod Agrippa II. Okay, that just hang with me, because if you think that's interesting, Bernice, who now joins Herod Agrippa, and by the way, the, the Bible is very careful not to call her his wife. There's a reason for that, because Bernice, uh, that we see here in Acts 25 and 26, is also his sister. And history records that in essence she was a, not in essence, she was, uh, all accounts would say that she was the lover slash mistress slash whatever, of, of Herod II, at least until she came on to another man named Titus, a general who had a lot of influence uh, in just a few years from this account, and who becomes eventually Titus uh, the Caesar after Nero in Rome. So Bernice is quite a colorful character herself, as well as her other sister, Drusilla. And so uh, Bernice uh, is, uh, is also known as the Cleopatra of the East, because of her relationship that would 
come along with General Titus. Uh, I guess they had somewhat of an open relationship there. And, and so eventually she would uh, have an affair with General Titus. Uh, and then uh, once the Jewish homeland was res- uh, destroyed and he went back to become the Caesar, uh, the emperor uh, after Nero, uh, history records that Bernice wanted to, well, be the next empress, like Cleopatra, of course. Uh, she was very, did a very similar move. And uh, the difference was the Romans did not want anything to do with Drusilla. And so she was a stigma, and uh, he put out the hand and said, no, we ain't having this. And so after that, she went into obscurity. Her brother, however, King Agrippa, this one that Paul's going to be speaking to and is going to be the subject matter really for the next two weeks, this man, this gentleman, um, he, he, he lived at least until 93 A.D., some say to 100 A.D. So he would be a contemporary and lived as long as another guy who hung around the Jewish leadership his whole life, and that was an apostle named John. And so he and John were somewhat like contemporaries, just paralleling their way right into the first uh, to the end of the first century and so that's quite interesting uh, in its own right so Herod Agrippa has quite a long life and and uh, the second Herod Agrippa the second has quite a long life so for those of you that aren't history buffs you may not care about all that but I like all that I like to know all the inner workings and know what's going on because it really does help you understand more when Paul steps up and Paul preaches to these guys uh, everyone in the world is, is looking at those guys as leaders, but there is one leader with any more power and influence than this man in chains named the Apostle Paul. And why? Because he's called of God. And man, I tell you, if Christians can get their head around that, all the fear would evaporate. We just sung about holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. What gives Paul the, the, the ability to stand in that kind of room and, and talk with such power? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself because he is friends with God. My, my goodness, I hope you're a friend of God this morning. I pray that God is quickening your life, that your life is more than just a bunch of Bible studies and sermon, uh, sermons that you're listening to, but you're having a relationship with Christ and you're going somewhere. God has called everybody. Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul writing to the Romans, everyone that's born again is called and we're all called to serve and we're all called to share. I'm so excited about what I see on the internet um, uh, mainly, I'm uh, not just our church, but I'm talking about HBF this morning. Man, the people in this church that are just sharing their testimonies, sharing the Word of God through various outlets. Some of them are structured and organized through ABFs, or they're doing it through the Kingdom Seekers and the ministries of HBF. And others are just like, I saw Kevin uh, Frost, man, he's praying for first responders. You know, and I'm like, man, praise God. You know, you don't need my permission to bless, be a blessing to people. Just go out and get her done because you're called. You're called to do that. But God set us on fire, let us burn. So Festus, uh, so the truth is Paul is in bonds because, uh, because of all of this. After many days, let me, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping ahead. So let me just get to where I'm at. I lost my notes for just a minute. So what we see now is the first opportunity uh, for Festus to have clarity. You can imagine King Agrippa would be interested in hearing how Festus's meeting went with the Jews in Jerusalem. Agrippa certainly knew of Festus's visit to Jerusalem and the Jews demanded Felix uh, be removed prior to that, his brother-in-law. So there's no doubt that King Agrippa had a political interest in what was going on. He wanted to know. It wasn't just some accident. He, him and Bernice are just rolling down through Caesarea. Well, he comes down to Caesarea because he does want to meet with Festus, and he does want to know what is going on with the Jews uh, because obviously he has an interest in that as well. So uh, if, you're, if you're following the notes, the next point is opportunity. this is an opportunity. We're talking about how blamelessness brings opportunity. The first opportunity we're going to see is the opportunity for Festus to have clarity. 
really what we have in verses 13 through uh, 27 of, of the rest of chapter 25 is just that. It is, it is Festus trying to have or get some clarity on what is now a problem for him with Caesar because now he has this dude that he wasn't really planning on sending to Caesar. He was planning on sending him back to Jerusalem so he could just be taken care of because he didn't want to release him because that would cause problems with the Jews. So he was hoping Paul was stupid enough to go back to Jerusalem and get killed. Paul's like, no, I'm not taking that option. I'm taking, I'm taking this option. I'm going to go see Caesar and you can't stop me. And so now he's like, oh, Oh, wow. What do I write to, the, what do I write to Caesar? Because i got to send this guy. And, you know, Festus already knows. We saw last or two weeks ago that he absolved him of guilt as far as sedition already. He knows he's not a man of sedition. He has nothing to do with the, the Galileans that are rising up in Jerusalem at all. And so his, he can't be charged under Roman law. So it's all Jewish law. And, and then after he heard the case, we saw in the first 12 verses that, that Festus is like, well, this has got nothing to do with the law. There's nothing here worthy of death. This is a dispute about your religion. I, I really don't want anything to do with this. And So why am I sending this to Caesar? What am I going to say? He needs clarity. So this, this, uh, this meeting with Agrippa is, is really important for Festus because, well, Agrippa is Jewish, even though he doesn't act like it, and, uh, or he's supposed to be. And he is, uh, he's not practicing, obviously. But uh, by name, he's at least working with the Jews. He is knowledgeable. Uh, he's more Roman than Jewish. But he's more knowledgeable of the Jewish law and the understanding of the religion, certainly, than Festus. Festus is certainly just a good old lost pagan Roman emperor. Uh, uh, not emperor, but a ruler. So Festus seeks clarity from Agrippa. And he does it first in private. And that's what we see in verses 13 through 21. After many days, Festus reveals the problem of this certain man left in bonds by Felix. He says in verse 14, And when he had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's calls unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix. I can just kind of imagine how this went down. I mean, he, he waits a few days. He doesn't just the first day he gets there. Paul's not really necessarily the highest uh, thing on the agenda, but it is a problem. And after a few days, he brings it up. He's like, Hey, uh, by the way, now that I've you know, we've, had, we've exchanged pleasantries, and I, I'm sure they, he's worked the situation now. He's got this problem that he brings up. I got this man, Paul, a certain man, left in, in bonds. It's not my problem. Of course, that's Felix. It's, you know, it's your old brother-in-law over there. And, uh, and I'm sure probably Agrippa had already heard of that. I know Bernice was very interested, interest, or not Bernice, but uh, Drusilla seemed to be very interested in what Paul had to say. Um, and, of course, they had been exposed to these Christ followers, these Jesus followers, uh, their father had executed James, and, and they were not ignorant of, of this way, so to speak. So they were interested in this Apostle Paul, who himself at one time would have been underneath the Herodians as, or been working with the Herodians as part of the uh, Pharisees. So this was a man that was quite interesting to them uh, as he had so, sort of turned coat, right? He had gone from one side to the other, went from a persecutor of the church, as we saw in Acts 9, to now a proponent and an advocate, and a very eloquent advocate at that. So the truth is that Paul is in bonds because Festus didn't have the courage to disappoint the Jews and release Paul. It wasn't because so much Felix had him in bonds, though that is the case. The real truth is Felix didn't have the courage to say, well, you know what, this guy's innocent. Uh, he's free. He's a Roman uh, because there's no charges. You don't have any witnesses. I'm throwing the case out. Paul, there's the door. God bless you. Have a good day. That Festus didn't have that courage because he himself was living in fear. Some of the people this morning that are listening to me, you need clarity on this. Your, your life will never be free of fear until you follow Jesus. 
You can have the most worldly power in the world. You could be Caesar himself, and you're going to be full of fear. Why? Because the only way to be fearless is to have faith in Christ. He's the only one that makes you safe. He's the only one that can save your soul. You have something to be scared of if you don't know Jesus, and that is spending eternity apart from him. That is staying in a position where your life is at odds with him, and you are at enmity. You are at war with God. God forbid that's your testimony. That's where Festus was at. He probably didn't even know why he was so fearful. He probably just thought it was politics. But ultimately, he needs to hear the message more than Agrippa. And he needs to understand that the man in front of him is an ambassador in bonds there to serve him the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that Festus shares with King Agrippa how he upheld Roman law in the face of Jewish pressure to release Paul from the Roman custody to the Jewish custody in his, uh, for his execution. In verses 15 and 16 it says, "...about whom when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him, to whom I answered, it is not the manner of Romans to deliver any man, notice this, to die." before that he uh, which is accused have the, have the accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Now, Festus makes it clear that the Jews want Paul dead, D-E-A-D, dead. There's no illusions here. Nobody is saying anything but that. These guys are serious. This guy, Paul, needs to die. They want to kill him. Uh, Festus makes himself look like an upholder of the Roman law, but he wasn't that concerned about Paul's accusers not having evidence during the hearing um, in the first part of Acts chapter 25. Now, he's not flat out lying. He's just not quite, he's kind of nuancing the discussion a little bit because he wants to make himself look good. And, uh, and so Festus embellishes the account to make him, himself look good. And we see as we go into verse 17, he says, Therefore, when they were come hither without any delay on the morrow, I sat in the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth. Well, that's true. He did that. He, did, he left out the part that it took him more than 10 days to get back to, to Caesarea to do that. But, you know, who's, who's, who's worrying about that? Festus traveled back to Caesarea and had a, had a trial with Paul's accusers. But he didn't rush back right away. He didn't act like, well, this is the most important thing I'm doing. But that's his prerogative. The text in Acts chapter 25, 6 makes it clear that Paul was the first thing on the Jewish agenda but, <clears throat> when he entered Jerusalem. But it wasn't the first thing on Festus's agenda, which would make sense. So in Acts chapter 25 and verse 6, uh, you'll remember that Festus said, and, and when he had carried, uh, or the text says, Luke writes, and when he had tarried among them more than 10 days. So the first day that, that Festus had gotten to Jerusalem, the Jews were in his grill about this apostle Paul, well, it wasn't apostle, uh, this man Saul is what they would probably have called him. This guy Paul needs to be executed. Well, it's over Ten, 10 days before he even goes back to Caesarea and, and uh, takes the time to hear the case. But to his credit, as soon as he sat down in Caesarea, the next day he did bring the case forward uh, with the Jews that had traveled with him. So Festus gives accurate assessment of what transpired in verses 18 and 19. Against whom the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I suppose. Now we get a little more insight in verses 18 and 19 than we had over on the other side of the chapter. Now we see that, the, that there was a preconceived idea, in, and I believe that probably Festus is being transparent here. He had a preconceived idea about what the, the Jews would be bringing, else he probably wouldn't have had this trial to even begin with. Uh, and so, uh, and so, he, he, uh, so he, he listens to what's going on. He says, this isn't what I was thinking. I mean, I thought we had some sedition. I thought we had 
you know, so we've covered all of that in previous weeks. But he said in verse 19, but he had certain questions against their own superstition. And I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago, how he just saw all this as superstition. I don't know that he was particularly religious at all. And I don't blame him if you're following Roman gods with a small g. Uh, that is just superstition. But what, he, what Festus doesn't know is he's just rolled into the real deal. And the real deal is the Apostle Paul. He can't distinguish between superstition and truth even though God is putting truth right in front of his face. And, one, and, he, and, and what is really awesome here is it says, and one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Now, I'm not sure. Maybe he thinks that you know, Paul misunderstood that, that uh, you know, Jesus is alive and, and they say he's dead. He, I'm not sure if he fully grasped the whole concept of the resurrection. King Agrippa will. But Festus was exper- expecting something more substantial from their arguments. Festus reveals his cards and calls the belief system what he believes it to be, which is superstition. Man, there's a lot of superstition, even today. And most of what he was uh, encumbered with and surrounded by his whole life was superstition. But you know, when the real deal was in front of his face, he missed it. It may be that even this morning you're listening to the Word of God being preached, and I'm not saying I'm the real deal, but I am saying God's Word is true and I better be real. I better be true or I'm a mess, right? So it better be right or, or it's wrong. So Jesus' word is true. It is right. We're proclaiming it just like Paul. But you know, you can miss the real deal. I remember when I was lost, I had people share the gospel. I remember highlighting the gospel right in front of my own face and reading it and not receiving it. I just missed the truth. I was blind. Uh, and so I had to realize that Jesus was alive before I would actually receive him. Some of us, are we're not receiving the truth because we think Jesus is a superstition. We think he's a story, and he's not the real person. But Festus <coughs> has the main thing uh, that Paul wanted him to get, and that is that Jesus, well, Jesus is alive. He calls him by name. He gets it down. This guy, Jesus, is what they're talking about. So if nothing else, the seed has been planted in, in the, the heart of Festus, in the mind of Festus. Festus knows there is this guy named Jesus, and everybody's talking about him. I mean, this is crazy. This is a, they're having a national incident. They're bringing this to my throne. What in the world? What are we talking about this Jesus character for? I'm sure he's probably a little frustrated. I would have been if I was him in his situation because it's just a superstition, and who cares? And that's your problem, and why are we having all this issue? So Festus has the main thing that he needed to get, and that's that Jesus was the guy that they're talking about. And there's a reason why that's important because even to this day, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus is power. We've got songs, right? There's power. In the name of Jesus. It's a great song. It's true because Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there their salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. There's power in the name of Jesus because that is the name of God manifest in the flesh. That is the name in which we call upon to be saved. There is power in the name of Jesus. And Festus is now speaking the name of Jesus, but he doesn't really know the power. Would to God in this country, would to God in this world, all the Christians understand the name of Jesus that we claim and the power of the resurrection in our own lives. We just celebrated it last week. And there's a power in the name of Jesus. That's why we celebrated the, Lord, or the, uh, the resurrection. We celebrated Easter last, last week. Because we stop, right? But it shouldn't just be once a year. It should be every day of our lives. Jesus is the resurrection, right? We talked about that last week. It's so important because Festus just isn't getting it yet. 
Maybe you're, you're kind of tuning in, you're like, man, I'm still not getting it. Well, maybe you're not, but I tell you what, keep hanging. Keep thinking about the name of Jesus because it isn't me that has to convince anybody. Paul doesn't have to convince anybody. All we have to do is preach Jesus and what the Bible says, what he says about himself. And he is the power of the resurrection. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. And the evidence is found in the word of God. So now we see Festus twist the story to make himself look good to King Agrippa. He goes on in the text and he says in verse 20, And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. Because I didn't quite understand, you see, King Agrippa. I didn't have as much knowledge as you do. I wasn't quite as uh, you know learned as you in this area uh, because I had these doubts and, uh, and, a, and a very thoughtful man. Um, I decided that he should go back to Jerusalem where this could be settled in a religious manner. No, that's really not what happened at all. But that's what he told Agrippa. It's not correct. And Luke doesn't, is not shy about telling the truth. Uh, you know, why did, he do, why, did he send, why did he want to send him back? Well, it wasn't because, you know, there was some shadow of doubt about his innocence. It was, it was because he wanted to do the Jews' pleasure. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, he didn't want to do them a displeasure. Right? He, was, he wanted to, to, uh, to placate them. And so he, he thought, well, hey, if I can get this guy Paul to go down there, they'll kill him on the way, but that's their problem. You know, like Pilate, man, I'll wash my hands of this thing. Now, uh, in Acts 25, verse 9, the Bible, the Bible doesn't let him off the hook. It says, but Festus, here's what really went on, willing to do the Jews a pleasure. Same thing that Felix was doing in chapter 24, the previous verse. Answered Paul and said, wilt thou go to Jerusalem? and there be judge of these things before me. He could have just said, you know, Jews, I'm not going to do you a pleasure. I'm going to do the right thing here, and uh, I'm just going to release him. Because you don't have any witnesses, and he's a Roman citizen, and he's free to go. Under the Roman law, he had the ability to do that. The reason, so did Felix, by the way. Felix or Festus could have done that. But neither of them did it. Why? Because they both wanted to do the Jews' pleasure. And so the Jews, they hated, they hate Christ. They still hate Christ. For the, I mean, they do. And uh, I'm all for Israel. I'm all for what God's getting ready to do with the nation of Israel, what God's been doing since 1918, since 1948, since 19, uh, the, the 60s in the, in, the, in the war. And all that God is doing to prepare his people to eventually be quickened. But right now, they're physically, they're physically there, but they still aren't quickened in their heart. Why? They won't be until they receive Jesus. They've got to know Jesus. He's their Messiah. Paul's coming to the Gentiles. Paul's... As I've already said a few weeks ago, Paul's already said, when he made that decision and said, you know what, guys, I'm going to Rome. Man, that door shut. And it was only going to be 10 years later, and Titus is coming in and taking their ability to worship at the temple away. Now, a few weeks ago, they, they wanted to build an altar, temporary altar, and offer, start doing sacrifices again. That's, that's incredible. There'll be sacrifices in the tribulation. We know about that. Temple's going to be rebuilt. That's all coming soon. But you know what? It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, it's going to go the wrong way for you, Israel, if you don't receive Jesus. You've got to receive Jesus. It isn't about a temple and sacrifices because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There's promises of sacrifices. We say amen and amen to all the promises of God to the household of faith, to the household of Israel. But the reality is you've got to come to Christ right now, and you've got to trust him as Lord and Savior. 
Anyway, I don't know why I'm preaching to Jews in the atmosphere. Uh, most of my audience is Gentiles. But anyway, maybe somebody will hear that. <coughs> so so Festus, is, Festus is in a situation where he's not being altogether honest with Agrippa. And he's trying to kind of make himself look better. But, you know, that's what lost people do. So Festus shares the latest uh, that Paul appealed to Caesar and the die is cast by law. Now, I don't know if, if Agrippa knew this or not. We're not told. So in verse 21 of chapter 25, uh, Festus says, But when Paul had appealed to be reserved under the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Oops. Now we're locked in. Now we know. Now Agrippa knows. Oh, okay. I see your problem. And we can see in verse 22 that Agrippa wants to hear Paul himself. He said, Agrippa said unto Festus, I'll hear the man myself. And tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. So Agrippa's like, sure, man, I'll, I'll hear this. He didn't say sure, man. That's what I said. He said, sure, Festus, I'll, I'll hear this. I'll listen to this guy, Paul. Um, that's interesting to me. I, my brother-in-law had quite a few things to say about him. My sister really thought he was quite eloquent, Right. And, uh, and so we don't know. We know that as we remember Felix, when he heard Paul, there was a moment when Felix heard the message and trembled, it says in chapter 24. So Paul was actually getting through. He almost gets through to Agrippa too. We'll get to that next week. But Festus seeks clarity from Agrippa, not just in private, but in public. Man, oh man, I'm going to skip uh, down to verse 24. Festus reads the charges and gives his purposes for all the pomp in verse 25. I mean, they bring this guy in like he is the man. And in verse 24, it says, And Festus said, King Agrippa, this is a public pronouncement. So we fast forward the tape. It says, hey, I'll hear him tomorrow. So within 24 hours or less than 24 hours, I mean, Festus has all this pomp and circumstance set up, and he comes in proclaiming the situation in public. Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men which are here, Present with us, you see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying, he ought not to live any longer. Now, I don't know if everybody in Jerusalem was actually saying that, but at least he made it sound like they did, and that would make the Jews feel good. Festus does not hide the fact that the Jews want Paul dead. Now, this isn't just a private discussion. He is going on the public record and saying, hey, we got Paul here, and we're going we're gonna to let you hear this case because all the Jews want him dead. And everyone I know that's a Jew wants this guy dead. I mean, that's a little over the top, but, you know, he's a politician. And so he goes on to, to state why, why this is such a big inquisition and why have I assembled this in verse 25. He says, but when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, I'm off the hook here, and, and that he himself hath appealed to Augustus, I determined to send him. Uh, but he's honest. I've got to give Festus that. Of whom I have no certain thing to write unto, my Lord. I don't know what to say. Wherefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before thee, O King Agrippa. Get that on the record. I'm laying this on King Agrippa, right? I mean, uh, make sure he, he's going to tell me why I'm sending to Caesar. Uh, that after examination, I might have somewhat to write. So Agrippa's like, all right, I, I'm, I'm the man. I got all the answers here. Let me add him. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not with all signify the crimes laid against him. So in essence, in verse 27, and Luke makes sure to write this down, Festus says, you know, I don't have anything on this guy, but I'm sending him to Caesar. I don't even know why. It's amazing to me that all the pomp and circumstance that went on 
to bring uh, Festus uh, in, or to bring Agrippa in by Festus, and he didn't even know really what he's doing and why. He's just got to send this guy, and he needs clarity on it. How do what do I write down? And that's really what the really verses uh, twelve through twenty seven in Acts are really all about is is the the opportunity for for Festus to get some sort of clarity on this because he is just blind to the truth. But he's not blind to the truth that Paul's innocent. He's just blind to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Festus thinks he needs to call this assembly to get clarity on the the charges in relation to the law of Moses and to the Jews' religion. But he was calling this meeting so he could get clarity on the gospel. And he doesn't even know it. Maybe this, this morning you need clarity this morning on the gospel. You can find it in the Word of God, and, and we can find it. We will give you help. I mean, you can contact us at hbfcast.org, contact at hbfcast.org. Man, email us. I will help you understand as best as I can the gospel, the good news. Call us right now. There's a pastor waiting, 380-3033. If you like, I want to know more. You can check out. You got my permission. Check out on my message now. Call. Call 380-816-380-3033 and talk to a real-life person who can explain more about who Jesus Christ is. And so there's also an opportunity here uh, not just to satisfy uh, the... Or to bring, I'm sorry, to bring clarity to, to Festus, uh, but also to, to satisfy the curiosity of Agrippa. Opportunity to satisfy Agrippa's curiosity in verse 22 Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, that's Festus, that thou shalt hear him. So Agrippa wanted his curiosity satisfied. Again, I don't know all of what Agrippa knew about Paul, if anything, but I suspect that perhaps Felix uh, and Bernice had maybe mentioned him, or, or not Bernice, but Drusilla. Perhaps Drusilla, his sister, had said something to him in passing or in, in, uh, in some sort of letter or who knows. But Festus was wanting... Uh, Festus wanted the expertise of Agrippa, who was supposed to understand the affairs of the Jews and can settle this argument. Agrippa also saw this as an opportunity because, I mean, after all, what, what kind of, he has all this pomp and circumstance and he gets to settle the question because, well, you know, he's the, he's the king. He's King Agrippa. So that, I'm sure, made him feel good and would solidify his image as an advocate for the Jews uh, with the Romans. So he had, a, again, he had a political interest in doing all these things. But little does he know that in 10 years, the Romans will totally destroy this, everything that his great-grandfather built and, uh, it, and the failed experiment of the Herodian kingdom. It's over. He really needs to listen to what Paul's going to say. We'll get to that next week. But Festus wants Agrippa's ego satisfied as well. So I believe Agrippa had a curiosity that he wanted satisfied, but we can see by the way he came in. I skipped over verse 23 for a reason because I just want you to look at how this thing goes down because it really speaks a lot to really what is going on between heaven and earth, between God's kingdom and the devil's kingdom. And so Festus wanted Agrippa's ego satisfied. And we see that in verse 23. It says, On the morrow when Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp, great pomp, we still use that word quite a bit, and was entered into the, the place of hearing with the chief captains and the principal men of the city at Festus's commandment, Paul was brought forth. So we've really covered all the text, but now I'm focusing on this one verse for a reason because we often think of the word pomp in relation to pomp and circumstance, right? 
It's getting to be graduation time. You know, da, 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 you know, you know that's the song. That's whatever. And, and there's a reason to that because in, in our culture, uh, you know, pomp is not necessarily a bad word in regard to just really a grand display. And we want to really celebrate something and, and so on and so forth. But when you look at the word pomp, right, our definition uh, here at HBF, our definitions as Bible believers is not found in, in Webster necessarily. Uh, although, the 1828 is a really good edition of the of the dictionary. But the, we really, if we really want to know what a word means, what do we do? We want to do, we want to just literally let the Bible define itself. So when you look at the word pomp in the Bible, it's mentioned seven times. It's not just once; it's mentioned seven times. Now, six of those seven are actually found uh, in the Old Testament. Now, a classic English definition today would be that pomp is ostentatious, that's gaudy. Maybe an over-the-top would be a way we would say it today in lay terms. It's just an over-the-top display uh, is what's going on, man. And, and, of course, we see a lot of that. There's a, a lot of the concerts and all the – even in the churches, there's a lot of over-the-top baloney is what I call it. But anyway, so there's just a lot of stuff that goes on, and it's not – it's all shallow and phony and fake. It's faux. It's faux excitement. But the reality is uh, the, the Bible uses the word seven times, and six of those times are in the Old Testament. I'm not going to run you through every one of them, but – I'll tell you, when you look at the, the, the root of what the definition of the Hebrew word is, it means arrogant. And there's not one mention. You can check me out on this. Go do a, a word study on pomp in the Old Testament. You're not going to find one mention of pomp in a positive light. Every one of them is negative, and it's against God. God is going to deal with the pomp. He's going to burst that bubble because he's the real deal. And so the only place you do find it in the New Testament is found right here in the book of Acts, translated pomp. And that's in regard to this entrance by Festus. And I think that's educational. It's an important thing because, as I've mentioned, this is a transitional book, but we're also transitioning, as I've mentioned over and over, from the times of dispensationally. where This, this time for the Jews, the door is closed. Herodian's empire, over, after this man, King Agrippa. Things are closed. It's all just smoke and mirrors. But the king of kings has already said, Paul, you're going to Rome. We're moving this thing to the Gentiles because Israel's blind in part until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And Paul's already written that. Paul already knows. And so the Greek word here is interesting because in the Old Testament it means arrogant. In the New Testament, when you look at this word, and I'm not one that gets into the Greek very much, but this is an interesting definition. It means fantasia. It's a root word that we use to this day for fantasy. I mean, how appropriate is that? These men are living out of fantasy of power and prestige and influence. It's nothing before God. Paul is not like, oh man, what am I going to say in front of these important people? I, I think he probably had the best night's sleep he ever had. Oh, I got to go talk to Agrippa tomorrow? Okay, I'll make sure to get my, I'll get up an extra hour early so I can wash my hair, you know. So he's just, he's, Paul is not impressed. Why is that? Why is that? Now, he's respectful, but he spends time with Jesus, the King of Kings. He just knows God. He's not caught up in the fantasy, the power trip that these guys are on. Why? Because he knows real power. He doesn't have to display it. He doesn't have to flex his muscles. He just waits for God to give him opportunities. He just is blameless and harmless, the Son of God. 
without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. These men are crooked. They're perverse. No doubt Agrippa's perverse. He's hanging with his sister in an intimate way. That is messed up, even by the world standards, right? Paul already spoke of that in the, to the Corinthians. I mean, you don't do that stuff. It's just messed up. Even the world knows that. These guys are messed up. Paul's not impressed with their power. He's impressed with Jesus. And so Psalm chapter 75 says this in verse 5, Lift up, lift not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck. For promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. You know, these men do have something to be scared of because they think they're in control and really they're not. In Psalm chapter 8 and verse 3, the Bible says, When I consider thy, thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art even mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. I mean, what a privilege it is just to be able to breathe God's air. And so Paul has a perfect perspective on all this. When he looks at, at Festus and Agrippa, they're men. You know, it was it's interesting. I was meditating on this before the sermon because I grew up, my father, my, my earthly father, was very grounded in this regard. He was not a respecter of persons in judgment, period. He did not care who you were, what your... He was, he was scary when it came like that stuff. I mean, I was like, man, Dad, that's the principal or whatever. You know, <laughs> and he, was just, he didn't care. So, okay. Um, but that's a, that's a different perspective. Being fearless of people in authority is one thing. But when you think about from this perspective, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not an earthly wisdom. It's not an earthly perspective that, yeah, all men put their pants on the same way. We're all just Adam's seed. We're all just sinners. All of that is all true. And you can, get a lot, you can get a lot of mileage. Just You can see through a lot of things when you just live your life like that, and, and you won't be bound by what other people think. And there's a blessing to that. But it's more than that with Paul. It's not just that Paul understands that all men are made of clay. It's that he sees men in light of who God is. So it's not just that I'm not as scared. I'm not scared of Agrippa, and I'm not scared of Festus. No, 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 no. That's, that's just kind of how the world looks at it. That's kind of how I would look at it in my flesh. But what's awesome about your Bible, what's awesome about a passage like this that we're studying, is it helps us understand what Paul is seeing is that this is the God of the universe I'm hanging out with. And these men are in great trouble. And God, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to talk to these men and share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because they have no hope without you. You see, Paul's having pity on these men because he sees, really, how incredibly ridiculous, how incredibly shallow their lives are, even with all the fantasy. Paul cuts right through it, and he pities them. It's not just because, well, they're just men like I am. No, these are men condemned, and I'm not. Even though Paul has the chains on, he knows, man, I'm not condemned. I'm free. He tells the slaves later, you know, he says, hey, if you're in bondage, you're God's free man. Live in the reality that you're in Christ and you're free. Hey, if you're free, you need to be God's servant. These men were not God's servant. Paul knew they weren't free. So it wasn't just that Paul was not afraid of them. Paul, he pitied them. And if anyone should have been afraid, it was them. Because they happened to be talking with God's man in God's time, and it was God's agenda, and they didn't even know it. Festus didn't miss an opportunity to bring the fantasy to life for King Agrippa. But I tell you what, you'll see next week that Paul doesn't miss an opportunity 
to bring reality to light to King Agrippa. It's also worth noting that each of the chief captains that are mentioned there, I don't know how many there were, but they would have commanded a thousand Roman soldiers. These guys had power in the earthly sense. But you know what? All the powers of this earth cannot match the power of God. Festus was flexing his political muscles and having this elaborate meeting with the chief men of the military and short notice and all the pomp that was just, well, just to stroke Agrippa's ego. So he could write a note to Caesar. Think about how crazy that is. Talk about government waste, man. Some things never change. I'm just saying. All right, so I got to finish this up. I'm out of time, but let me, let me, so we've seen that there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity for clarity for Festus. There's an opportunity here for um, curiosity for Agrippa. But lastly, and this is just going to help me get ready for next week, I want you to see the opportunity for Paul to fulfill his calling. Now, in, verse, in, in chapter 25, uh, you'll see back in verse 23 in the text that we're talking about. Look at, notice this, what it says. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains, those military men in their unis, man, and the principal men of the city, all the dudes in their, their, their awesome-looking togas, man. At, at Festus's commandment, when, when he says so, here comes this guy, Paul, and he was brought forth. Paul was brought forth. We know from Acts 26, 29, that Paul was bound before the dignified assembly. He was in chains, man. That's what he says. I, I, I'm, he, next week you'll hear he's preaching to Agrippa, and he's like, man, Agrippa, man, if I, everything was good, man. I just wish I didn't have these chains on. So he comes in. We know he comes in. He's brought in, and he's in chains. God's free man. God's man for the time. God's man of transition. God's man has been faithful from the first day from uh, from the first day till now. The man that God chose to speak to, to to kings, to Gentiles, to the nation of Israel. He walks in the room and everybody's blown up in their mind and their egos. And here comes Paul rolling in with some chains on. He's brought forth, bound before the dignified assembly, in chains, which symbolizes their power over him. And as I mentioned, he's not the least bit intimidated by his captors because he was, in the, in, he was busy about the business of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Paul knew what it was to be in the court. He'd been praying probably right before he went in there. He was just in the courtroom on high. This is nothing like that. Paul had been stoned and left for dead at Iconium. You want to know a little bit about Paul and what he was like? He'd been stoned and left for dead at Iconium. He had already received 40 stripes on his back five times, save one, he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, He had been beaten three times, he says, with rods. He had been involved in three shipwrecks prior to even coming to this point where he's eventually going to sail to Rome. He had spent three nights and a day in the Mediterranean. He's not, not to mention he's been in prison. We saw in Acts he was at Philippi, he was beaten there, he was in shackles there. He took, he took a beating there, unlawfully I might add. Paul bore, his body, bore in his body, he says, the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6 and verse 16 says, For henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul wanted to prove his sincerity, he just said, Guys, here it is. Look at my carcass. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been bashing the head with rocks. 
I mean, what do you need, man? I'm a living epistle. This is what it means, and it's worth it all to follow Jesus because of what he did for me. I mean, Paul, when he enters the room, you know, today a lot of people like to get tatted up, you know. You watch, if you like sports people especially, they like, there's sort of like an intimidation. That used to be safer. You know, war veterans, they'd get tats, and they'd be scary, and then it got, became bikers, and now, you know, you got, you got homosexuals wearing tattoos. I mean, it doesn't matter anymore. Everyone's wearing tattoos. But there used to be a meaning to that. There used to be like, like you were a bad boy. I'll tell you what, when Paul steps in there in chains, all humble, and you look at this dude, he doesn't look like much, but he's a bad boy because he's bearing the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not putting on a show of humility. He is humble. He's not acting like a servant of Jesus Christ. He is a servant of Jesus Christ. He's not acting like an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He knows who he is, and he's doing what God called him to do. Are you doing what God called you to do? Are you who God called you to be? He saved you to be that servant. Are you that servant? Are we following him faithfully? These are questions for myself, not just for you. Because I believe Paul was excited to be able to preach and to share the gospel one more time to this distinguished group of guests. He wasn't upset and bitter over the two years of bondage, though he didn't like it. He didn't care for the change. He didn't care for a lot of things. But you know what? He was excited that he was serving Jesus and he was doing what God called him to do. And he did it with all his might. It wasn't pomp. It was power. In Romans chapter, chapter 1 and verse 15, the Bible says, So much as is in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He's not ashamed. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. As he stands before these men of notoriety, of dignity, he's preaching the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not a man in the universe that can stand before that without bowing their knee. It is just a matter of time, no matter what position you are in. It doesn't matter if you're Donald Trump or Mr. Ping over in China or whoever you think you are. You're nobody if you haven't bowed your knee to Jesus. And Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for you. And that's what every man must reckon with. Paul understood that. Paul was ready, willing, and able to preach the gospel. He was not ashamed. Are we? Paul was setting an example for the rest of us to follow, including his son and the Lord Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. You know what Paul's saying? You must be like a United States Marine. Your job as a Marine is to kill everyone and let God sort them out. Paul says, listen, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Some are going to appear in glory. Some are going to be reconciled. Some are going to fall on their knees and ask Christ as Lord and Savior. Some are going to think it's superstition. Some are going to think it's just silliness. And some aren't going to receive the gospel. But preach the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And in eternity, it will all get sorted out. Your job as a Christian is to simply proclaim the truth, to bring peace terms as an ambassador for Christ while there is time. Because time is short. So what makes the difference? I think William Booth may have had some insight on that. William Booth set England on fire in the world. The remnant of his ministry and his zeal 
in the 1800s is found in the, today's Salvation Army. It's not what it used to be. But back in the day, man, he was lighting it up with the gospel. He said, but what is the use of preaching the gospel to men whose whole attention is concentrated upon a mad, desperate struggle to keep themselves alive? Paul didn't care about his life. It wasn't his. He just gave his life to Christ to, to use as God wanted to use it. If that meant beatings, that was great. If it meant imprisonment, that was great. If it, it didn't matter to Paul. He wasn't in a mad struggle to save his life. He wasn't going to Rome because he was afraid of dying at the hands of the Jews. He was going to Rome because that was the next place God called him to go. He had no fear. And he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about the needs of others as he prepared to share his testimony with King Agrippa. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Paul was not a hard, arrogant man. He wasn't, he wasn't gloating over the fact that he had this great relationship with God. As a matter of fact, it grieved him that so many were lost. It, 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 actually, it actually grounded him. So that's why he wasn't freaked out to stand before these men because he saw those men as God did. In Philippians, he would write a letter to this church. He loved the Philippian church. In the second chapter, he said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. As Paul looked upon these men, he, he knew that, you know what, there was a time in his own pride and his own zeal, he was killing innocent people. None of us is smarter than God. He thought he was as close to God as he could be, killing people that love God. God says, no, Paul, if you don't love Jesus, you don't love God. He says, you know, we need lowliness of mind. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you can read the rest of the text. It's outstanding. Jesus is our example. Um, the God of the universe humbles himself and is killed at the hands of Romans and the Jews as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Paul's following that pattern. He just wants to get the truth out one more time, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that and that alone is all the power anyone in the universe needs to be reconciled to God. That was the mind Paul entered into that great assembly with in Caesarea. He was a humble man. He wasn't a broken man in the sense that he was, he was all broke up over what had happened. He was actually a whole man. He was a holy man. He'd been restored by Christ. Even though his body had been broken, his soul, his mind, and his heart, they were secure. And as he entered that assembly at that moment in time, you know why God put Paul there? Because God could trust Paul with an opportunity to preach the gospel. And man, I, I feel like I'm no Paul, that's for sure. I, I feel bad. I just missed an opportunity last week. I felt like I, was, I had to pray hard just to get up here and preach today because I felt like such a failure. And I tell you what, guys, the reality is, is that we got to all be humble and on mission all the time because you'll miss opportunities and it, it'll be over before you even realize what you missed. We got to live in light of eternity, not in light of of our bondage today in light of the COVID crisis. Don't get me wrong. We should pray for people. We should care. We should do, we're going to, I'm going to hopefully next week announce some new ministries that we're going to be able to do in the middle of this crisis, I hope. So by God's grace, we'll keep ministering to people. But at the end of the day, we don't live in fear and we don't live in bondage, even if we're bound. 
our life is full and it's filled with Christ. So in conclusion, we see Paul preach to Agrippa. Well, we'll see that next week. But he was blameless, and God gave him opportunity to fulfill his call. Are you fulfilling your call today? Even if you're bound, I hope you are. You can. Are you ready to preach? Are you willing to preach? I know many of you are. I want to commend you that are because you are doing such a great job. You're encouraging me. And maybe you're looking for clarity for, for a case against Christ. <laughs> you're not going to find it. Festus is never going to find a case against Christ. He's just going to have to send him on to Rome because there is no case against Christ. If you want clarity, you need to join God's team. You need to get, you need to get with Christ. You need to confess Christ as Lord and Savior. Or maybe you're just like a grip and you're just curious. You're like, I just like hearing this stuff. It's interesting to me. Well, you need to come back next week and we'll see how that goes. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Because today is the day of salvation. Maybe you're listening this morning and you are curious, but you're not serious. And now is the time to get serious. Serious with God. Today is the day to lay claims on Christ because Christ has already laid claims on you. And all you got to do to lay claim to Christ is simply... Admit, man, I'm a sinner separated from God by my sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. You believe that he's truly the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that he lived a sinless life, that he died as our sacrifice, that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. And he's alive right now. He's going to come back in judgment soon. And right now, this is like a, I'm like an ambassador offering peace terms. Please receive the Lord Jesus while you can because he loves you and he wants to redeem your soul from the curse of sin and death. If you're really serious about that and you're not just curious, man, call upon the name. You can do it right now. You can say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. With all your heart, just say, Lord, I, 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 I let go of everything but you. I come to you. Save my soul. And if you're sincere about praying to God and asking him to come to your heart and save you, he'll do it. You need to contact myself or someone you know that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, man, we will help you in the next step and make sure that you can follow him faithfully. Maybe this morning you're a Christian and you're like, man, Brian, I'm stirred. I need to follow the call. Hey, I'm with you, man. I don't want to get to the end of my race and not be like Paul. I want to get to the end of my race and finish strong like I see Paul doing. I hope you do too. So maybe you're a sideline and you're like, man, Brian, I don't think I could make it. I've screwed up so much. You know what I want you to know is that same letter I just read from Philippians. Paul starts off talking about their fellowship in the gospel from the first day till now. And I got news for you today. If you're a Christian and you're breathing, even if you've made mistakes, it's not too late to repent. It doesn't mean you won't have consequences for a disobedience, but what that means is you can decide today that you're going to run your race and finish your course. You may limp, you may drag a leg, but even that God will use for his glory. If you just say, you know what, I'm tired of just, being, of just placating the world. I'm tired of being in bondage to sin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live in the fullness of Christ. I am going to do the things that God's telling me to do. I am going to going to watch church three times a week now online. I am going to pray. I am going to do the things that God tells me I know I need to be doing. We'll do them in God's grace. And if you need help, we're here to encourage you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time.